The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for November 19th, 2022. On Friday, November 18th, North Korea conducted its second test this month of an intercontinental ballistic missile, prompting Vice President Kamala Harris and other world leaders from Canada, Japan, and South Korea, among others, to condemn the launch. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from September 2017. In the episode, Stephen Haggard, professor of Korea-Pacific Studies at UC San Diego, discussed the strategic and political risks that North Korea's missile and nuclear capabilities present, the relationship among its allies and adversaries, and the past and future role of the United States in addressing North Korean aggression. I'm Vanessa Sauter, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 23rd, 2017. The escalating tension between North Korea and the United States has risen to an unprecedented level. Earlier this month, Steph Haggard, professor at UC San Diego, gave a lecture at a private function on the complicated strategic and political risks that North Korea's missile and nuclear capabilities present. He talked about the complex relationship among North Korea's allies, the impact of sanctions against Pyongyang, and the past and future role of the United States in addressing North Korean aggression. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 249, North Korea and the Tactical Divide. Um, You know, I always like to start with this picture, even though it's become sort of a cliche about North Korea, because it contains a tremendous amount of information, actually. Uh, The first, and this goes back to a conversation I was having with Bruce, is this is about as close to a natural experiment about uh, political institutions, social institutions, as you can get. I mean, same peninsula, same people, ethnically homogenous, and on one side of the border, you have poverty, in effect, and the other, you have this tremendous economic development, which has occurred since the early 60s. Uh, But there are two other nuances here I want to uh, talk about. One is that uh, a number of political scientists and economists are starting to use luminosity as a way of tracking economic development. And though it doesn't show very well, uh, the luminosity that comes out of North Korea at night is actually dominated to an unusual extent by Pyongyang. And I call this the Pyongyang illusion. So when you see pictures of North Korea that are from Pyongyang, Uh, Watch your wallet, because that's not the country. Uh, It probably has a GDP per capita of somewhere in the $2,000 range, which would put it at a low-income African country. So we're really talking about a country which is very poor, and obviously because it's very poor, it's also very weak. And so we at least have to be sensitive to the fact that this is a country that sees itself surrounded by powers which are obviously much more substantial in capability. So let me, uh, let me just provide a little bit of nuance on some of the discussion in the video about exactly what the capabilities are and then turn to the politics of this. Uh, we now have very good open source information on exactly what the missiles are and where they're launched from and so forth. And uh, several things to note here um, pretty obviously. One is that there's been a tremendous acceleration of the development of the missile program under uh, Kim Jong-un who took power after his father died in December 2011. But the other thing that you might notice is the launch sites uh, on the map. And previously, we were in a phase of missile development where missiles were basically being launched from test sites. 
So they were really in development. And now, essentially, you're seeing missiles being launched from military units. So these are missiles which are now being deployed. We've moved beyond the test phase. And a lot of these are road mobile. Uh, the road system in North Korea is quite underdeveloped. The share of paved road is much lower, or basically would correspond to what you would expect from a country of that GDP per capita. But they've imported these large trucks from China, uh, which are treaded, which basically permit these move, uh, missiles to be moved around. And one of the tactical issues for American military and Korean military is that these things are mobile. And obviously, that's uh, connected with the desire to develop a, a, uh, a survivable uh, capability. Uh, these are the sort of scary maps that you always see. Um, we don't actually know that these ranges exist uh, for these missiles. Um, one of the things that's not mentioned in the press is the fact that these tests that we saw on July 4th and July 28th and August 29th are probably with payloads that are below uh, what a nuclear weapon would weigh. Um, but, but the more important thing I want to stress um, is that the problems, the, the strategic problems that the US military faces and its allies' military face are not just with the homeland, which of course gets the, met, the, the news that, there, that, we could be, that we could be struck by these weapons, but remember that the United States has significant military forces in the region. That's the Guam issue, that's Japan and Okinawa, and that's South Korea. And the fact that those forces are potentially held hostage by the development of these capabilities is significant. So the Guam issue is real. You know, the fact that those, those, uh, those forces are potentially uh, vulnerable. Um, you know, the missile inventory is extremely complex. I just want to make one uh, comment again to add some nuance to the, previous, uh, to the previous video that you saw, which I thought was very well done. The North Koreans have been developing solid uh, fueled rocketry. So uh, rocket fuel, liquid rocket fuel, is very corrosive, and it takes time to transport the rocket fuel, and you've got more warning time with liquid fuel uh, missiles than you do with solid-fueled uh, missiles. And the big push towards solid fuel means that these things can be uh, set up and launched on much shorter warning times. So there's also this hair-trigger quality to what's going on in the missile development program that we're worried about. And this particular missile is also um, comes out of a Soviet design, Soviet-era design, which could be, could be um, mounted or carried by a submarine. And once you get into submarine and submarine-launched ballistic missiles, you don't have as much warning time because they can pop up anywhere. So some of the missile defense systems, like the Aegis systems, which are at sea, you've got a submarine that can come to surface and can launch on very short warning. So there are a series of issues about the nature of the missile um, uh, inventory, which are, are worrying to military planners. No, that, but they're pursuing that capability. And the other thing I just want to say about their capability, I, I, a colleague of mine um, who I went to graduate school with who's now at Harvard, Steve Walt, had this great expression about the Soviets. He said they're a pygmy with a giant right arm, by which he meant that the economy you know, was really weak because of the nature of the institutions, but socialist systems are capable of devoting a lot of resources, channeling a lot of resources to particular activities. And one of the things I'm doing now with some colleagues is just tracking the development of this nuclear um, uh, infrastructure, scientific infrastructure. And it's clear that the regime has invested very heavily in that. And some of these pictures, in fact, you see of Pyongyang are rewarding the scientists who have been uh, given these tasks by providing them with housing and all kinds of goodies. Uh, this is a famous picture, which you might have seen, that was taken in uh, May of 2016. This is obviously not a nuclear weapon. It's a mock-up of a nuclear weapon. But it looks like a plausible nuclear weapons design, so we know they're pushing towards miniaturization. And um, you know, the, the, the devices which are tested, we don't know how large they are. Um, but you know, they could be large, and miniaturization is the technical problem which they're basically trying to solve, so you can pair the missile development with the, with the, uh, the warhead. And um, you know, this is rocket science. You know, this is hard stuff. Um, you know, it's engineering problems, because you not only have to miniaturize, but you have to mount this thing in such a way that it can survive the turbulence of takeoff, flight, and particularly reentry. 
So we still don't have consensus on whether they've solved that problem, but the speed with which they're developing on these multiple fronts suggests that they have the capacity to throw the resources at it and solve that problem. I'm not going to say a lot about this picture. Similarly, this is a mock-up. Um, this is a plausible uh, thermonuclear device. Uh, you may or may not know that atomic weapons are, f are fission and nuclear weapons involve a fusion stage using hydrogen elements like deuterium and, and tritrium. Um, the yield on this last test was about five or six times the earlier one, so it's not implausible that this would be some type of boosted hydrogen weapon, if not a full thermonuclear weapon, which involves an atomic bomb essentially triggering the thermonuclear uh, fusion reaction. Okay, so uh, why do we care about this? I mean, that may sound like a strange question, because uh, nuclear weapons do have a sobering effect on uh, the deterrent situation. Um, you know, it's obviously very unlikely that the North Koreans are going to launch either a conventional or nuclear attack out of the blue. I mean, there's no reason why they would do that because, as uh, Secretary Mattis said the other day, the response to that would clearly be overwhelming, and the U.S. has a capability to uh, defeat uh, the North Koreans with substantial losses, obviously, but that capability is not in doubt that that war would be won. But there are a series of other um, strategic problems and tactical problems that uh, the U.S. military is worried about and the U.S. is worried about in their developing these capabilities. And these are somewhat less obvious, so I want to spend a little time on each. Uh, the first is, obviously, if you do get into a conflict with an adversary who has a nuclear weapon, it quite substantially complicates war fighting because you somehow have to signal in the course of the war fighting that uh, you're, you have limited objectives, because if you have ultimate objectives, then it's, what is the adversary going to do? It's, they're going to be tempted to use the capability. So uh, there's a lot of concern about what fighting a war on the, on the Korean Peninsula would look like now that you have an adversary with nuclear weapons. I mean, that should be uh, obvious. But at the diplomatic level, a lot of this, what North Korea has been trying to do throughout its entire, the entire career of the Kim dynasty is to essentially drive wedges between the United States and its allies in the Asia Pacific. Because to the extent that the U.S. is held at risk, U.S. forces are held at risk, and particularly if the homeland is held at risk, then the question is, is the alliance commitment of an extended deterrent to North Korea, is that credible? Because the U.S. is going to have to calculate what are the risks of actually extending that deterrent through the use of U.S. forces if the U.S. itself is vulnerable. And a lot of the politics you see you know, has to do with these assurances that the U.S. is trying to apply to extend to the South Koreans. That's one of the reasons why some of the president's tweets are disturbing um, in, in the face of this possibility that the U.S. would be subject to retaliation. So the question of alliance decoupling and whether the U.S. commitments are credible is related to the North Korean capability. And then finally, uh, obviously the U.S. has an interest in nonproliferation. I don't need to spend time on that. But there's also this very interesting strategic dynamic, which is known as the stability-instability paradox, which is that if you have strategic stability at the level of the deterrent, that is, the U.S. has nuclear weapons, North Korea has nuclear weapons, and by the way, the conventional capacity of the United States is adequate to deter North Korea's use of nuclear weapons. We don't need to use nuclear weapons to deter them. But if that's stable and both sides are fearful of escalation, then it raises the question of whether either side can test at lower levels thinking that the other side would be concerned about escalation. And so there's a concern that, uh, to put it most simply, that if uh, Kim Jong-un has nuclear weapons, he's going to think, look, I can get away with things because you know, they're going to be cautious about escalating. So those are the type of risks that we're worried about, not a general war, but some sort of miscalculation about what he might be able to do or um, concerns that would arise in the context of the alliance uh, being uh, put at risk. So let me just talk briefly about the diplomatic state of play. I want to try to get through this so I can get to questions. 
Uh, the history of this is that following the discovery that the North Koreans were pursuing a nuclear capability back in 2002, in the fall of 2002, uh, the Chinese cooperated with the United States in putting a structure in place that was called the Six-Party Talks. And they included the two Koreas, Japan, Russia, the United States, and China. And those talks actually made quite a substantial progress. All of those states, by the way, including Russia and China, despite what Putin has been recently saying, and you, ha you have to actually read what he says as closely, all of those parties agree on the objective of denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which only means one thing. It means denuclearizing North Korea because there are no nuclear weapons in South Korea. They're neither stationed nuclear weapons there, those were removed in 1991, nor does South Korea have a nuclear program. Uh, so there's an agreement on that. And uh, there was a famous statement of principles that was reached in September 2005, which basically articulated a kind of grand bargain in which the United States and Japan would recognize North Korea. We would replace the armistice because as you probably know, there's no peace, there was no peace agreement following the Korean War. There was just an armistice among the military parties. So that would be replaced with a peace regime and the North Koreans would denuclearize, probably in some phased way. So everyone, this is a, this is a classic bargaining problem. Everyone knows what the end state looks like. It's not complicated to see that. It's all about whether there's a path to get from where we are to there. Um, I don't think it has to do with what, with what uh, uh, an agreement would look like. We can fl you can flesh out the details of that fairly equally. It could be more or less complex in terms of what the institutions in Northeast Asia would look like. But basically, it would be a trade where, where North Korea would denuclearize and, and, um, and the U.S. would... Uh, and the other parties would recognize North Korea and assist it economically, obviously. I mean, for those who really are, you're talking about bottom trawling, you know, the possibilities in a country like North Korea in, in terms of investments are enormous if this thing were regularized, right? I mean, there are resources, there are people who are literate and numerate and so forth. There's no reason that it couldn't, uh, you know, uh, pursue a, a strategy of growth that matches those others in the region and it could become a richer, very much richer country, right? So uh, this is just an over, you know, a, a satellite picture and, and a little stylized picture of the, of the North Korean uh, nuclear research center at Yongbyon, where there's the reactors from which the plutonium is extracted from spent fuel rods, and you've also got centrifuges and so forth. The one point to make in this regard is that North Korea actually has uranium resources, which means that it can mine uranium, mill the rods, and generate. Um, its own fissile material. So that's a constraint you know, that gives them the whole nuclear fuel cycle. And the objective of the six-party talks was really to start by shutting this down, coming to some sort of agreement by which Yongbyon would be, would be shut down. So uh, the, big, the big issue really are the tactical questions about how you move the negotiations forward. And I just got back from an interesting meeting that UCSD sponsors every year which is a shadow six-party talks to which the North Koreans have periodically come. We held it in Singapore this, this, uh, this last summer, uh, hoping that the North Koreans would come because it was a neutral site. They didn't show up. That proved interesting because it allowed a very frank discussion among all the parties, including representatives at the negotiating level, of, uh, of what should be done. And what you see basically is a kind of tactical divide between the Chinese and the Russians on the one hand, and the US, the Koreans, and the Japanese on the other. And uh, the core of that goes something like this. Um, the United States recognizes that it has very limited military options, and this is the reason why. Everyone, a lot of the people in this room have probably been to Seoul. You know that it's 40 or 50 kilometers from the DMZ, and along the Kaesong Heights, there is substantial military uh, artillery capability that could be taken out over the course of about 48 hours, but not without damage to Seoul. Um, and that's setting aside the whole question of whether you know, a nuclear weapon would be used, which I think is highly unlikely, but not impossible. And this just shows you the kind of saturation, the kind of artillery fire which could be unleashed if the North Koreans chose to do it. Now, whether they would do that is an interesting question. You know, is that a credible? Is it credible that they would do that? Uh, and so uh, Secretary Tillerson in particular, whatever you think of how he's managing the State Department, about which I'm very concerned, 
Um, it's, it, uh, he has emphasized repeatedly that the United States is committed to a diplomatic solution to this problem, um, despite what the president has said. Uh, but in the interim, the U.S. is going to continue to strengthen the deterrent and is going to uh, deploy defensive capabilities. Um, and in addition, and this is the most important part that kind of plays into the economics, is that the United States is going to use access to the American financial system as a means of deploying secondary sanctions against entities that are trading with the North Koreans. So the US, as I'll show you in a second, does very little trade with North Korea. Um, so it has no direct leverage. But any firm that wants to use the clearing system of the United States clearly has to go through, um, has to go, or needs to provide its clients with uh, you know, dollar-denominated assets, um, has to go through the US clearing system. And those entities can be targeted. And since 2016, the president has quite substantial authority. And in this last Iran, North Korea, Russia sanctions bill was actually mandated and required to impose secondary sanctions on, on entities that are trading in prescribed products under the multilateral uh, UN Security Council resolutions, which I'm, I've talked about. And so the US focus is very much on the sanction side in trying to force the North Koreans back to the table through the use of, of uh, uh, sanctions. And the secondary sanctions are obviously not only trying to influence North Korea, but trying to influence China to exercise diplomatic influence with respect to, uh, to North Korea. Okay. Now, this is a slide that, um, you know, you've heard this 90% number. Mark Nolan and I, among others, have sort of done the exercise of putting that data together. Um, North Korea doesn't issue its own trade statistics, so basically you have to collect mirror statistics of all the countries doing trade with North Korea and then put it together from the other side. And one of the perverse effects of sanctions, these are trade shares. This isn't actual trade growth. Uh, these are trade shares. But you can see that one of the perverse effects of sanctions, so if you go back to, this, this starts in about 2000 or 2002, I think. If you go back to 2002, you've got China, Japan, and South Korea each accounting for about 20% of North Korea's trade and the rest of the world at about 40%. That's now down to practically nothing because South Korea has closed Kaesong Industrial Complex, which was the last bit of trade you see there in the green line. The US never had anything. Russia, the complementarities are not there. The rest of the world has gotten fed up. And so China is basically left with dominating um, the country's um, uh, trade. And since this is an economic audience, a nuance here, and this is I'm on a complete minority of one about this, but um, there's a North Korea has been running a current account deficit with China that it appears to be financing by some combination of inward foreign investment over the second half of the 2000s, particularly in mining. Um, and, you know, drawing down reserves from who knows where, you know, banking accounts that they've put away here and there. And I think that this situation is unsustainable. I really think that there's no reason to believe that North Korea is immune from an old-fashioned, you know, balance of payments financial crisis. Um, and that part of... Uh, because I think it has to do with this strange division of labor within the North Korean community, which most people are attracted to it or on the strategic side, and they don't look at the economics of it. Um, but, but, you know, it just doesn't look sustainable. At the last Security Council resolution added a billion dollars of trade prohibition in coming months, you know, gradually, to a country whose peak exports are $3 billion. I mean, I just don't see this as being sustainable. And so what I watch, you know, this is wonkish stuff, it's very much akin to what you guys do, is I watch the black market exchange rate. Because if you go back to the beginning of the Iranian negotiations, what happened was, and this was prior to the election of Rouhani, this was under Ahmadinejad, you saw this collapse of the black market Iranian exchange rate 
And it was really that that drew the Iranians back to the negotiating table. So to say the sanctions don't work, I mean, they worked in Iran. They at least got us to negotiations, whatever you think of that deal. And I don't see any reason why North Korea is immune from the laws of you know, a sustainable current account deficit. On nuclear proliferation-wise, would you start to see their data showing up on that chart? Guess what? Do you think Iran publishes its trade statistics? <laughs> no. So, 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 Iran, we're in the same situation where we have to put together things in mirror statistics form, and so you've got two countries, neither of which publish their trade statistics. We don't know what's going on with Iran. It's just us. It's guesstimated. Um, and and you know the North Koreans, the North Koreans are. What's so funny about North Korea is it's an incredibly entrepreneurial country because following the famine in the early 90s, which is my first book on North Korea, killed between 600,000 and a million people, about 3 to 5% of the population, you had this incredible growth of markets because the state socialist system effectively collapsed. And so households are scrambling, they're selling, they're investing. So you've got a population which is incredibly entrepreneurial and you've got state-owned enterprises that have effectively become hollowed out and contract with private entrepreneurial capitalist types to use those assets for money-making and foreign exchange-making purposes. So it's a very flexible, adaptive economy in a weird way. I mean, it's been sanctioned repeatedly, and it's managed to wiggle out of it and engage in other types of activities. So, you know, quite entrepreneurial. So, uh, but let me try to get through. And so, um, the difference is, is the Chinese and the Russians basically say, okay, you know, we're willing to do some sanctions, and the Chinese have really stepped up in that regard. I think they don't get the credit they deserve. Everyone wants an instant solution, but, you know, it takes time for these sanctions to work. They've been, um, they've been, uh, they've only really been pushed, you know, over the course of the last year to the point of monitorable bans on certain categories of commercial trade, and we can talk about the details of that. But what the Chinese want is, the Chinese want the United States to commit more forcefully to getting back into some structured negotiation. And the proposal they've made is basically one in which the United States would freeze its exercises, the joint exercises it holds with the South Koreans, in return for a freeze of North Korea's missile and nuclear testing. And as you can imagine, you know, to Hawks, this looks like, you know, pure extortion because we're giving up something which is totally legitimate, a defensive operation with our allies, in order to buy nothing, less, nothing more than a freeze of the development of their capabilities, which does nothing to actually reduce them or roll them back. But the idea is this would lead into a negotiation. It would be a trust-building measure that would lead into a negotiation in which you could have that discussion. And, you know, I, I'm not, many people who look at this are very much opposed to this proposal of a freeze. Uh, I'm not opposed to it, but the problem is the North Koreans don't appear interested in coming to the talks. And so the reason why the U.S. has been sort of skeptical of this is not because they're in principle opposed to opening, you know, some opening gambit that would lead to talks, but because the North Koreans don't appear interested in coming back to the talks. And so, um, you know, no president is going to commit to this kind of thing unless you can move to the second stage and actually have some sort of meaningful uh, discussion. Um, you know, I think I might stop here. Um, um, uh, there's a lot of interesting things to say about how North Korean companies operate through shell companies that might be of interest to this group. But um, the main thing I would say is fasten your seatbelt. If there's one little piece of pending risk, I think everyone's seen this, so maybe it's already in the markets, but you know, September 9th, it looks possible that there'll be another test, um, perhaps at a longer range of this generation of two-stage missiles, which, are, which overflew Japan. Um, that was the first missile test which had overflown Japan. You had satellite, so-called satellite launches, which overflew. But you'll probably see something like that in the next uh, couple of days. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want 
on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code lawfare20. Take questions, yeah. That's what I enjoy most, so. Just picking up the last thing you said about what's interesting is that they won't come to the talks, which which I think kind of goes back to your earlier comment about, uh, you know, you had that one of your slides about the denuclearization pact they'd come to. I mean, I think it brings you back to the question of what do they really want? You know, in in, in a perfect world, what, what would Kim hope to achieve? I mean, would he embrace the notion of there being this and a perverse stability if all of these countries have nuclear weapons, or in fact, is he going to continue to be an aggressor from there? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, you know, I was waiting for someone to ask this, uh, the, the tough question, you know, sort of what does he want? And I put a blog up the other day, which is sort of four theories of the case. And, you know, I think one is, you know, those who are sort of more on the dystopian side really thinks he wants a war fighting capability and that this is ultimately, you know, he he sees this as a way of getting rid of the Americans and sort of weakening the alliance and setting himself up for unification or something like this. I think this is a fancy. Um, I think it's, it's not a fancy of his. I think it's a fancy that he thinks that. I just don't think that's correct. I think the two main theories um, boil down to, um, uh, you know, that he's racing to acquire a deterrent because he actually feels he's under threat or he's bluffing because he believes that the United States is thinking seriously about preemption or preventive war. And that's, you know, anytime you've got two parties that are talking about preemption, you don't have to be a game theorist to realize that that's sort of, a, a, you know, an unstable, that's almost the definition of an of a crisis instability, right? Because if I think you're coming and you think I'm coming, then it just takes the smallest signal for us to believe that, you know, we have to take action, right? And then my theory is more along these economic lines, which is I think he's in trouble um, and it hasn't become manifest yet, but he knows how much is sitting in his accounts wherever they're stashed. And he can look at the simple arithmetic of facing these sanctions, which are going to be quite binding if the Chinese implement them. And now you're talking about oil. And he's hoping that these provocations will get adequate attention, that they'll sort of force uh, the Chinese, probably, to play the role of brokering some sort of you know, settlement um, that would make concessions. Um, so, um, but you know. I always say in these talks, 50% of what I'm saying to you is correct. So, um, but I don't know which half it is. So, it, it, it uh, um, you know, it's just very hard to judge, you know, what he's doing. Um, but I do think that he's, you know, the statements have expressed repeatedly an interest in talking to the United States as a nuclear equal. There are a lot of status issues here. The nuclear and missile program is very deeply embedded in the domestic political economy. You know, and so he's, he's raising the bribe price. You know, there's no question. I mean, you know, this is raising the cost of that we're ultimately, you know, everyone knows we're either going to have to just defeat the country militarily or we're going to have to negotiate with them. And if you negotiate with them, all of this is raising the payout, right? Yeah. I'm just curious, does... Can, in terms of the education in Korea and their ability to kind of develop these technologies, are, do they get educated in China? Like, where, where do they go for yeah. the education system? And- Fascinating question. So, so, you know, socialist educational systems are very strange because, you know, on the science side, you know, fine. You know, on the social science, humanities side, it's all, you know, propaganda. They're capable of drawing that distinction very, very uh, sharply. And so you've got a population which is literate and numerate at $2,000 per capita income. I mean, you know, it's a standard kind of socialist thing, right? 
um, you know, penetration of education, you know, not bad in terms of basic skills, right? But uh, um, there's a long history with the Soviets uh, and, and actually state-to-state -state cooperation going back to the Soviet era. And it's very interesting that the Soviets were doing this in part to control the North Koreans because these alliance relationships, both on the U.S. side with respect to South Korea and the Soviets with respect to the North Koreans, it's not just backing them. It's also making sure that they don't go rogue. And so the nuclear cooperation was designed in part to make sure that the Soviets had a hand in what it was that the, the North Koreans were actually doing. Um, but the other thing is that the North Koreans are just incredibly adept at exploiting the fact that the world information order is incredibly open. And if you look back at how they developed key technologies, they just basically took them. Their reactor design was a British reactor design that some Brit had put up online somewhere back in the 50s. And you know, the reprocessing was something they stole from a European consortium. And you know, this is stolen from that. You know? And, and you know, they're very, you know, it's an, again, it's an entrepreneurial country, curiously. And you know, they're very adept at exploiting you know, these asymmetries. You know. so, so, so to the extent that uh, that Kim Jong Un proves to be, you know, very kind of unstable and and um, unchanging in, in, in his views, um, you, can you address maybe the other options of um, you know either those within his party uh, that that might want to remove him or, right. or outside, whether it's a military coup, South Korean Secret Service, even right. the Chinese might want to take him out if he's right. you know unreliable as a partner right. for them. Okay, so let, let me just, uh, let, me, let me play teacher. So, so I didn't say he was unstable. Uh, no, I, I said if he proves to be unstable if he, yeah, or okay. unreliable. Right, or, right. So, uh, starts to well, scare even people with, around him yes, and his allies. Yes, yes, Okay, so there are lots of good questions in there, but so, so let me take them apart. So first of all is the question of whether this is a regime which is vulnerable to some kind of overthrow from within. And um, you know, we know from uh, substantial literature and political science, there are basically two ways that these kinds of regimes go. They either go from mass mobilization from below, typically in the capital city, or they go from coups from elites, inter-elite kind of politics. And on the mass mobilization from below, um, this is a state socialist system that has these encompassing organizations. So it's a poor country with an extraordinarily powerful state. It's kind of an odd mix, because we think of poor countries that are vulnerable to collapse as ones that are riven by civil war, where you're, you're lacking in central state power altogether. But that's not the North Korean state. And everyone who is a possible dissident has kind of been moved out of Pyongyang. And you've got a city where there's high investment in elite satisfaction. So mass mobilization in the city, a la in Seoul in 1987, or people power in the Philippines, or you know, in Poland, or in Romania, you know, that's sort of unlikely. And so then the question is, um, you know, is it possible that he would be vulnerable to overthrow within the elite? And in that regard, he just seems to be, have you know, undertaken a path of action since he came to power to deter that from happening, mainly through purges. And everyone emphasizes the, the the side of the purge, which is getting rid of rivals, but the other side of the purge is, of course, you're making space for your people. And so in any authoritarian transition of this sort, you typically see this process where, even though these were loyalists to his father, how do I know that I can trust these people? Get rid of them. And that's what he did with his uncle, that's what he did very strategically. And there's also some fine points about how military commands and the party itself is structured to maintain redundancy. Um, and this is a process which is known you know, in political science as coup-proofing, you know, basically designing institutions that make it extraordinarily difficult for potential adversaries to coordinate action, because a coup relies heavily on the capacity of the opponents of the regime to coordinate with one another but you can't trust each other. And I think he's done an excellent job of both of those things. So internally, I don't see this as a regime that's near collapse. Now, China, could China go in? Um, you know, their foreign policy has really, you know, has this strong non-interventionist history to it. And I, I just don't think that they would go in unless they really felt 
that I was wrong and something chaotic happened on the ground. Um, and so since I don't anticipate that likelihood, I think the fact that they would actually go in and solve this problem militarily, which they could also do, is probably unlikely. I don't know if that fully answers the question. But. I, think, I think that's a good answer. That, yeah, I mean, the, the, the path to that happening is very unlikely, and so we're kind of left with what we have currently. Yeah, no land of lousy options is you know, the, the yeah. metaphor that people use. Thanks. Yeah. So. yeah. What does that 90% of China, China's trade equate to in absolute dollars? Uh, total, I think this is, this is total trade. So there's a small, the, the current account deficits were larger in the earlier period, but it's about, you know, somewhere between $2.83 billion either way. So about $6 billion. So, so that's also an indication of, you know, this is just peanuts, right? I mean, this is a rounding error for the Chinese. Right. So what, what's the motivation for China, especially since being funded with debt? What's the motivation with, for China to keep on trading with them, right. particularly that's being funded with that? Why not just shut it down or slosh it by right. substantially as opposed to it rising? Good. Good question. So, so one thing to remember, just in the accounting sense, right? I mean, this is just sort of an accounting identity. So it's not that China's trade is going up as a result only of the, a strategic drive on their part to increase trade. They'll say something about that. Part of that increase is just the fact that everything else is falling off, right? So, so by default, they become the lender of last resort, in effect. But, it, yeah, but it's very interesting because during the second half of the 2000s, at the end of the Hu Jintao years, they actually pursued, the Chinese pursued a strategy that was very similar to the South Korean strategy of engagement. Because basically what the Chinese want, they're saying to the North Korean leadership, they says, why can't you just be like us? You know, we're still in power and markets are flourishing and, you know, why can't you just follow what we're doing? And so they sought to do that by saying, look, you know, we're willing to engage, send companies in. And it's very interesting because there's great, these great Chinese, you know, characters that say something like, you know, mutual benefit. And so Hu Jintao basically said, look, you know, we're not going to give you aid. And, but we're going to allow our companies to trade with you as long as they can make money. Their ability to make money is a function of what you do, not what we do. And they tried that, and it had no effect on the nuclear. And in 2013, at a very important party congress meeting, um, Supreme People's Assembly meeting, he rolled out a line explicitly where he said, our objective is to develop economically and simultaneously to pursue our nuclear weapons program. And most people who are kind of liberals, that is, they believe in the constraining power of markets and markets are, you know, lead to Pacific behavior, this seems like an oxymoron that you can do both these things. But he doesn't think it's an oxymoron. And, and you know, that's what his objective is, is to sort of have both sides of this. So, but, but this leads up to the present. The last resolution that was passed in early August, I mean, if this is implemented, you're talking about taking a billion dollars of North Korean exports off the table? So, you know, the, 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 the sense in the newspapers and from the president is the Chinese are not doing anything? That's not really true. You know, they've really gotten fed up. But I think what they're doing is they're doing this gradually and with some discretion so that they can monitor, because the one thing they don't want to do is they don't want to turn the place upside down, right? I mean, it's, it's like our Mexico, right? If Mexico blows up, it's right there. And, and so I have a certain amount of sympathy in this regard with the Chinese. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the attempt at providing economic bribes for abandoning a nuclear program, are we at a point where that type of stable equilibrium or this Chinese model where you can be a little controlled state but you can economically develop and still be in power, do you see that possibility of transition to that type of a stable equilibrium as just completely off the table given the path we have gone on? Right. So, you know, this is, this is super stylized uh, kind of cost-benefit analysis, but I think it's one that you would appreciate. So... Kim Jong-un has a nuclear deterrent, okay? uh, and he believes that provides him with security. So there are only two ways you can change his calculus about moving towards negotiations. Either you have to extend him assurances, security guarantees, in effect, 
that will make him feel equally, if not more secure, without a nuclear weapon, or you have to demonstrate to him that there are costs pursuing the nuclear path that he didn't anticipate. And as you can see, the negotiation side works on the first half of that equation, and the including through material incentives, but those are in the future. You know, he's sitting there and saying, are they going to come across with this? I mean, we always think they have, you know, they're the ones with credibility problems. Well, we have credibility problems, right? Or you work on the second side of the political equation and you increase the costs in order to get him back. So, you know, I don't think anyone believes that this is a high probability event that we can get into this negotiated settlement world. We may just be living with a nuclear North Korea, you know, in a kind of long-run way. But um, that's the only way it seems to me that you can do it. You know, you either have to provide adequate assurances that he'll abandon the nuclear weapons, and including whatever payouts, material payouts, would be associated with that, or you raise the costs. And so I think that's what the debate is about. What's the mix of those instruments to try to change his calculus? But in a simple cost-benefit analysis, it's got to be some mix of those things if he believes he's more secure maintaining this deterrent. So in terms of the 90s, right. uh, which I guess worked on the first part, right? You know, right. The, uh, provide incentives and see whether or not he would, you know, he would live up to promises of abandoning. Right. So it didn't work out because... Why? We didn't fulfill our promises? Well, you know, I mean, the, needless to say, this is the debate among people who look at this, right? So, so um, just a couple points. I mean, in 94, Clinton showed uh, or expressed a willingness to actually use force in that case. So there was a force piece of that settlement. I mean, Jimmy Carter parachutes in and strikes this deal, and then you negotiate the so-called agreed framework, which shuts down... Uh, Yongbyon. Um, the North Koreans did not abide by that agreement. I mean, just flat out. I'm not saying in any way defending them. They abrogated it by pursuing the centrifuge path because previous weapons, fissile material, had taken the plutonium path. They got this technology from the Pakistanis. They shouldn't have done it. We don't know how far along they are. The question is whether the Bush administration could be, have been more adroit at that point in trying to say, how are your wife and kids? You know, how are things going? You know, by the way, you know, we have this intelligence and, you know, this is really, we see this as an abrogation of the agreed framework. We really need to discuss this. And the U.S. response was to cut off, to, was to basically blow up the agreed framework. So I'm more on the side that, yes, the North Koreans were responsible for abrogating this, but that the, Bush, the first Bush administration prior to Condi Rice taking over in the second administration just really mishandled this. So situation. essentially, um, you would not attribute our behavior during the 2000 period of Iraq war, toppling Gaddafi, you know, ascending a lesson that they already, that they, they learned, which is... Oh. You got to have nuclear weapons, or else you get toppled. Oh you don't no! Think I that mean, that's a completely different question. You're absolutely right, and we know from intelligence that they say, "Look at the Libyans, look at the Iraqis." But that was later. In other yeah, words, they were cheating on the the original agreement, right. and you don't think that Bush was adroit enough to try to salvage that, and then his subsequent actions and the follow-on right. actions of the Obama administration basically drove home, right. particularly to the new leader, that. I got to go here. Yeah. This is the way I have to go. And then I guess the relevance of that would be to other countries, especially if North Korea, Iran decide that it is in their interest, maybe aligned with Russia, to break out, to, to provide technology such as they possibly did with Syria to other nations as right. part of generating currency and also generating influence and continuing to incite instability. Do you think that is the lesson that we should take from North Korea, that it's not just North Korea, that will be other nations which will achieve, attempt, will have an incentive and perhaps the capability because of Iran, North Korea, to, attite, to achieve the same thing? It's not necessarily terrorist groups, but actually nation states which are reasonably functioning. Yeah, okay. 
I mean, there are multiple parts to this, and it would make a, a couple of beers. You know, it's often thought that the peaceniks, the non-proliferation types, are sort of soft. It's not true. I mean, the non-proliferation tr- types really don't want to see, you know, North Korea break out. They're very hawkish. I mean, this, you know, we've got to handle this problem. We have to press on it. Because if we don't, then what happens to the non-proliferation regime? It's basically gone. Because you've already got, you know, the India-Pakistan problem setting aside Israel. And if North Korea goes, then, you know, what's left? I mean, there's nothing left. And so those who are non-proliferation-oriented in terms of seeing that as a, a key strategic objective of U.S. nuclear policy are very hawkish in terms of coming down hard on this and making sure the costs are paid. Um, and just in terms of the timing, um, we got the intelligence with respect to the um, Pakistan connection in the probably in 2001, 2002, Things break down in the fall of 2002, and that's exactly when we're in Iraq war mode. And guess what? Kim Jong-il disappears for 40 days when Iraq is invaded. He disappears. Like he's, we know where these leaders are because they're wandering around doing these on-the-spot guidance tours. And for 40 days around the time that we're going into Iraq in March, he's gone. So it's very clear that he thinks that without nuclear weapons, he's got to have some pretty ironclad guarantees of security. I mean, you know, they, they believe their own rhetoric. There's nothing in the U.S. strategic doctrine that suggests that we're going to go attack North Korea. But they don't think that. But, it, but essentially, any agreement with North Korea was the non-proliferation folks are going to want to see a regime yeah. that will that, you know, hopefully have teeth that will prevent Iran, assuming that agreement holds, Absolutely. and North Korea Absolutely. From, from engaging in... Yeah. Okay. And, and, and for those of you who don't follow this kind of stuff for a living, I mean, there's a deep infrastructure sitting at the International Atomic Energy Agency, you know, monitoring these agreements, trying to make sure that, you know, the safeguards agreements which are signed with all parties are enforced and so on. And, you know, they've been very active players at periods of this and in standing up for the fact that, you know, we need very clear safeguards agreements that are monitorable and enforceable. And that was part of what blew up the six-party talks in 2008 was that the North Koreans were not willing to subject themselves to the kind of inspections regime that we felt was, uh, was needed. Last question, and then we can take a break. Yeah. I was just going to uh, propose a hypothetical that you just became president of the United States. What, what is your next move? You know, uh, uh, talk about low-probability events. Uh, and, yeah, with probably high cost, too, where they just transpire. Uh, no, I mean, you know, like I said, I, you've probably gathered I'm no fan of, of the administration on these issues, and particularly we didn't talk about the economic side of this, like the signals about the chorus, which I just find, you know, unbelievable that we talk about pulling out of the chorus at the same time we're facing these kinds of things. But I, I do think that um, Secretary Tillerson has listened very carefully to two particular individuals in the State Department, Joe Yoon and Susan Thornton, and that the basic strategy he's outlined is quite coherent, which is we need to keep the Chinese on board. You know, we're going to do the defensive actions and deterrent actions we have to do. We're going to reassure the allies. And we're going to pursue sanctions aggressively, either with China through the UN Security Council, through another resolution, possibly involving oil. And if the Chinese aren't willing to do that, we're going to use secondary sanctions against Chinese firms to get the job done. That seems completely coherent to me. Where U.S. policy has been a little less clear is exactly when and if we're actually willing to go back to talks. And the parameters of those talks you know, if you've ever followed a negotiation in the Middle East or, you know, in the Balkans or anywhere, you know, setting the parameters for negotiations is extraordinarily difficult and time-consuming. It needs effort. And I think neither the United States nor, frankly, the Chinese are putting in the kind of effort to define, you know, this is what the agenda would look like. This is what's a feasible outcome set for these talks. Here's who's going to be involved. Here are the parties. Here's the timing. You know, here's what we're offering. And I would just like to see a little bit more on the talk side because the idea that the North Koreans are going to wake up one morning and magically decide that they're going to unilaterally disarm is just fantasy. It's a fantasy, right? 
And it seems sometimes like that's what we somehow think might happen if we just keep pressing. Right. So even, even despite their apparent uh, lack of desire to join the talks. Yeah. So, so now. You, you'd bring them in. How, how would you actually, you just go to them? And well, no, I think the sanctions, I mean, the sanctions either work or they won't. And if they don't, then you're just in a land of containment. We're no worse off. But I just, the thing I want to emphasize is we have not seen the full effects of these sanctions yet because it takes, I mean, the, they're continuing, they're smart, they're continually adapting, they're adjusting, right? And the question is, can they race ahead of a billion dollars of lost export revenue? I don't think so, right? And that's, that's the positive spin on the sanctions. Okay, I'll, I'll probably be around a little bit Thanks this morning if anyone wants that. to, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to tweet the Lawfare Podcast, share it on Facebook, and give it a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast distribution system you may use. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.